Lord, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the promise and the hope we have for our future and our life in you. Thank you that that eternal life begins today, here and now, as we learn to walk with you and to follow you, and we remember every day what it means uh, to live out the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would speak to our hearts and to our lives in your name. Amen. We're at the end of the story, but it's worth remembering, and this is what we believe, of course, the Bible is God's word. It's several books put together. You know this, but it's also one big story that points to Jesus, and it tells the story of God's plan of creation, then the fall, and then redemption, and consummation. Here we are at the consummation of all things. We're at the end of the story. And if we think back over that story of the Bible, we talked about it a bit last week, one of those central themes that the Bible story keeps coming back to is God making his dwelling with us. This is part of his rescue plan to bring us back into relationship with himself through Jesus. And Jesus bridges the gap that our sin causes between us and God. And that dwelling theme, of course, begins in Genesis where God creates the world, creates the cosmos, and it's, it's like a temple, and he puts his image in the temple, which is what you would do in the ancient Near East. You would have a temple, and you put an idol or an image in the temple, and that idol represents the deity to the people who come to the temple, and God spins that whole idea on its head, and instead of an idol puts a living image bearer in his creation temple who then lives out his character into the world and brings this project forward. That's what we do. We're called to be the image bearers. And as we follow that story, we realize in the fall, the, 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 the trauma of the fall is to sever the relationship between us and God because of our rebellion and our sin. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know this story well, right? This is just kind of part and parcel of what we believe as Christians. But that theme is picked up again of God making his dwelling with us when we get to Exodus. And I've been reading through the Bible uh, this year, starting in January, and was reminded again of how we can kind of cruise through Genesis and Exodus because it's kind of upbeat and like fun stuff's happening. And it's like, you know, it's narrative and it's stories and you kind of cruise along and then you hit Leviticus and you just get bogged down. And, uh, you know, getting sidetracked with all the details of cleanliness and, like, what happens when your house gets mold and, like, what happens if you have an itch and, like, the it was very COVID-related. Like, the priest has to come and he's like, yeah, dude, it's a rash. Like, we got to keep you for seven days. You got to isolate and make sure it doesn't spread and then I'll come back in a week. And Sarah and I imagined a whole hilarious comedy TV show about a priest in Leviticus whose whole job is just to go around every day and deal with issues, right? He's like... Jason, what have we got on the agenda today? And Jason looks up and he's like, well, we got three houses to check out and we got to go back to the outskirts of the, of, the, of the camp and make sure so-and-so can come back. At the end of every day, he goes out and he's like, okay, Bob, you can come back. You're clean. Okay, yep, you too. And there'd be some guy out there like, no, I'm still unclean. I don't want to come back yet. No, you're clean. Get back in. You know, <laughs> This is his whole life. And you get bogged down in it because it is sort of very detailed, kind of heavy, right? But the whole point of that law giving, regardless of the purity stuff, 
which is which is important but it it's to help them realize they can't just waltz into the presence of a holy god without dealing with their sin and so there has to be some atonement for the sin and the evil in our lives and of course all of the levitical system and the priestly system deals with that so that god can come and make his dwelling with them right and one of the perhaps the most tragic moments, and we talked about this when we did our Exodus series, is like while Moses is up on the mountain getting God's instructions to make a space that looks like the Garden of Eden and evokes Eden, everyone else is going, well, God isn't moving fast enough for my liking, and I don't really like how the leadership's going, and so let's just take matters into our own hands and do our own thing, right? Man, the the human like the the analysis of the human heart in the old testament is so applicable to today right it's like the leadership sucks <laughs> god's not doing what i want him to do i'm just going to i'm just going to go my own way i'm just going to do my own thing and that's eventually what happens i it's so it's so fitting isn't it you know so often when we're bored and impatient we'll make an idol out of something and that's exactly what they do we'll make an idol whenever we want to snatch at something good, but do it in our own way and in our own time. And so in this case, Israel wants to snatch at having God's presence with them without dealing with their sin. And so they craft a God to dwell in their midst, but they've missed the whole kind of point of having to deal with atonement and forgiveness. And they're snatching at God's presence, but they go about it in their own way and they're ignoring God's timing. And, and probably the most tragic part of that moment in the biblical story is that as they attempt to mimic God's presence with them, they almost miss out on the real presence of God with them. And I just think, man, in my own life, are there moments where I am so busy trying to craft something for myself that I miss out on what God's doing? It's just a need for me to step back sometimes and be receptive to what the Spirit wants to do in my life. Not just, you know, as he transforms us spiritually, but even as we're discerning our vocation, if you're a young person, and sometimes we want to make things happen for ourselves, and we just need to step back sometimes and go, God, what do you want to do with me? In fact, that's true at almost every stage of life. God, what do you want to do in me? Let me just, let me just make sure I'm not making an idol because it's not happening in my, in, in my time. I'm going to let you do what you will do in your time. And God actually threatens to withdraw his presence altogether. It's this pivotal moment. And, and it can just seem like kind of this, this moment between God and Israel. But it's a bigger issue if you're thinking about God coming to dwell with us as a, as a bigger theme in the Bible. Because if, if God removes his presence from his people, that's like a major setback on the whole point of, of gathering a people for himself. It's the whole point of of Abraham and choosing Abraham and choosing this family and, and choosing a nation and rescuing them out of Egypt. The whole point of that is that through them, God is going to bless all the nations. That's the whole idea. And they can only really bless the nations if God's presence is with them, if he's dwelling with them, if they're in right relationship. And so when God threatens to withdraw that, it's not just because he's temperamental. It's because of, of the people not realizing just how serious this whole thing really is. How much is at stake? And Moses wrestles with God in prayer, and God reveals more of his mercy and more of his grace, and he continues to agree to work with them, even though they're a broken people. And he's going to live among them, even though they're, 
They're just a mess, right? And the rest of the Old Testament is basically confirming, yep, they're a real mess. And God is really gracious and really faithful to continue to work with them even in their brokenness. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. He said, this idea of God dwelling in the midst of his people was always supposed to be this advanced signpost to God's eventual goal, which was his presence flooding the whole world. What God wants to do for Israel is what God wants to do for his whole creation. And as I was thinking about Exodus and thinking about Revelation, and especially this chapter as we talk about God's dwelling coming to be with us in this new creation, it's interesting that the outline of Exodus, where God rescues his people out of plagues, dealing with God's judgment, right? All that stuff in Egypt, and then bringing them into a new relationship with him and on Mount Sinai and dealing with, with that and, and establishing this new covenant with them so that he can then live among them, even though they're going to fail time and time again. But that storyline of out of plagues and into relationships so that he can dwell with them, that's the same storyline that happens in Revelation. It's actually the same sort of pattern. In Exodus, the people are under Egypt. In Revelation, we're told again that the followers of the Lamb are living under Babylon, right? Both are real places, but both also become these these symbols of any time we end up living under beastly nations or nations that give themselves over to violence and lust and the oppression of God's people. And so this happens time and time again throughout history. And both are worshiping places. Egypt in Exodus has its ways of drawing people into worship. That's what the idol making is all about, right? They come out of Egypt, but now they have to deal with Egypt in their hearts and they make an idol. And Babylon in Revelation invites people into worship as well, into worship of the beast. And both of those are parodies of worshiping the true living God. And so you have plagues happening, and then you have false worship happening, uh, this, this sort of enticing of a culture to come and devote yourself to some other god, right? And in Exodus, we have the plagues and the destruction of Pharaoh, and then God coming down on Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. And then in Revelation, you have the plagues, again, the judgments, seven times, three times, right? You have the judgments, and then instead of the destruction of Pharaoh, you have the, actually the destruction of Satan and death and evil. And then you also have God coming now, not just in the tabernacle, but God coming fully into a new heavens and a new earth to make his dwelling with us. And so you have a, a repeated pattern. Both Israel in Egypt and the church in Revelation experience persecution and martyrdom under idolatrous world systems. And that would have spoken so much to the original hearers of Revelation in their day as these seven churches live under an idolatrous world system, Rome, that would have seemed all-powerful. It would have seemed like Rome is everywhere and it is controlling the culture and we, we don't have a say anymore and it's just shaping so much of our life. Sound familiar? And, it, and this is all we hear about in the media. And this is all we hear about from those in leadership. That's what it would have felt like to live under the Roman Empire. And yet the hope of Revelation speaking to them in their day was that Jesus is the true king. 
and all beastly nations will eventually end and fade and be brought to judgment before the throne of God. And those who follow the Lamb will be victorious and rescued, even if there is a season of going through persecution. It made sense to the original hearers, and, and it would have made sense to the original Jewish hearers, too, as they go, yeah, God's already shown himself to do that faithfully, because that happened for us back in Exodus. That's our story, too. But that's also how Revelation can speak to any generation of Christians because it promotes this idea. It helps us to, to endure with hope when we encounter evil in whatever beastly empires we may face in our own day. When we find ourselves confronted by systems in our culture which are opposed to Jesus and against the Christian faith, we can find hope in Revelation knowing that God has got us and will see us through even that. And I was thinking yesterday, just as Sarah and I were talking about some issues in the world and uh, kind of grieving the direction of various things in our culture. And I was sort of struck by the thought that um, I need to remember my God is not, is not, I, I, don't, I don't worship or serve or seek to promote simply a Christian nation. Um, I need to make sure I don't make an idol out of out of having the nation be a certain way. Um, but I, I don't worship the idea of a certain culture. I need to worship Jesus. And so the culture may change radically from what I would wish it to be. But at the end of the day, I don't worship the culture. I worship Jesus. And I allow him to rule and reign, even if, even if things look very, very different from what I would like them to be. And, and I know different from what he would have, that many of the things in our world break God's heart. Um, but I don't need to despair because of, of the culture changing, as much as that is bad. Because at the end of the day, my hope is not in the culture saving me. My hope's in Jesus. My hope's not in having a Christian culture forever or having sort of Christian nationalism, my hope is in Jesus. That's where I put my hope. And that's how Revelation speaks an incredible hope to any generation of believers, that God does deliver his people, like he did Israel and Exodus, and that gives us hope that there is indeed a stunning future for us with God, and he will see us through. And that's what this last couple chapters is about. And I just want to point out a few things from this chapter before we come to the end of our time together. I love how the book concludes, again, we talked about it last week, with this stunning vision of the marriage of heaven and earth coming together, of God's dwelling space, heaven, and our dwelling space, earth, coming together, and he's living with us, making all things new. And the way this new creation is described, it's, it's an amazing series of pictures and promises from Israel's scriptures. We've got a new heavens and a new earth, it's like a restored creation. It's healed of the pain and the evil of human history. Just like we read in Isaiah 65, 17, where the prophet says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And here we see that fulfilled. It's also like a return to the Garden of Eden in terms of living in a paradise with God. But you'll notice it's not just a garden it's taken a step forward. It's actually a garden city. 
Uh, it's not just go back to Eden as though Eden was perfect. It's almost like Eden itself was an advanced signpost of what God wants to do with his creation. Eden's good, uh, but this is now the perfect thing. And so we're not just going back to Eden. We're going into the garden city. And perhaps one of the most interesting details is the way it reflects, the city reflects the identity of the people of God, right? You've got the 12 tribes of Israel named on the, on the gates, sort of reminding our, ourselves of where we've come from, the, the people of God throughout the Old Testament. But then we also have the 12 apostles and their names represented on the foundation stones in verses 12 to 14. And then notice the city has walls to, like, define it's a city. And it's got all these gates, but the gates are never shut. The gates are not for defense. They're just sort of for decoration to come on in. Right? There's, it, it, they don't close the gates. And then we read this, this great passage from verses 15 to 21 where John's measuring the city. And uh, verse 16 tells us like, it's huge. It's really huge. 12,000 stadia is something like, like 1,300 miles, and others have said 1,500 miles wide. So it's massive. Interestingly, I didn't know this until I was studying the passage, but that's roughly the same square miles as the Roman Empire would have been. And so it seems like John, is, and that's part of John's point, is that the whole where Rome seems like it's the whole world, this will cover the whole world. This is just as great, if not greater, than Rome and all the superpower that it would have seen to its original hearers. So it's the same, same hugeness, largeness of what God's going to do to redeem his people. And then there's the strange thing that it's also 1,500 miles high. And I know I've mentioned this before, but it's just, it's just one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Um, I remember the first time doing this in a class. I remember getting chills thinking about it, but I probably can't deliver it with the same sort of awesomeness. Uh, that happened for me, and I know I've talked about it before, but yeah, it, it's not just 1,500 miles wide or in, in length, but it's also 1,500 miles high. Um, and remember, it's a symbolic vision, so it's not like an architectural blueprint, like, you know, it's got really high skyscrapers. Um, the city is a perfect cube. It's 1,500 miles wide, depth, depth, length, and height. And the only other place in the Bible where you have something described as a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle. And so what's being said is that the whole city is now the Holy of Holies. The whole city is now the dwelling place of God. And now we live in the Holy of Holies because the whole city has become that place. And that's why I wanted to start with Exodus so we can have that imagery in our minds and remember that as we head to this moment, because you won't catch the depth of what's happening in that moment in Revelation 21 if you don't have Exodus going on. That's why you can't, you can't read the New Testament and not read the Old Testament. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Whenever once someone says, I don't need the Old Testament anymore, you just don't listen to them. It doesn't make any sense. This is the fulfillment and the conclusion of all the grand story that started back in the first page of Genesis. Right back at the very beginning. And so now the whole city has become the holy of holies and that's why verse 22 makes so much sense when he says i saw no temple right because we're living in it the whole creation's become the temple we don't need it anymore because there's now uh, direct access we might say the lord god the almighty 
is the temple and the lamb, right? And so like in Exodus, where the tabernacle and then later the temple throughout Israel's scriptures are, are like the place where you kind of get access granted to God's presence, now God himself has come to make his dwelling with us and the whole creation has become the holy of holies, has become the temple. The whole earth is filled with your glory, Lord. And one day that really will come to pass. All of creation becomes the holy of holies. That's really, really cool. And that reminds us, too, that the temple in Jerusalem is an advanced signpost as well. It looks ahead to this moment in Revelation, this ultimate reality of what God is looking to do. And in fact, there's passages even like in Habakkuk that look forward to this in Revelation where it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This was God's plan all along to fill and permeate all creation with his presence. And so in the same way, the animal sacrifices, right, point ahead to Jesus' atonement. And and now the temple and the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle are pointing ahead to all of creation becoming God's dwelling place with us, pointing ahead to its fulfillment in the new creation. And we see that same transformation happening uh, from sort of the small thing in the Old Testament to its fulfillment here in the relationship between nations as well. If you look down at at the end portion here in verse 24, what's it say? By its light all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. Referring specifically to the night being a time where you would get attacked, right? You don't need to shut the gate because there's no fear of, of evil or harm happening. Now, that's an interesting point because all throughout the Bible, and especially in Revelation, the nations are often raging, like they're often evil, right? It's often bad times coming from the nations. They're hostile. They're promoting the idolatry of, of Babylon, right? They've gone, they're, they're part of the idolatrous world system. But now, here come the repentant nations bringing their own unique cultures and beauty and delight through the open gates into the gathering of the people of God and the new creation. And this is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 2. In Revelation 21, it says in Isaiah 2, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. There's this sense all the way from back there that God's plan and purpose is to redeem the nations who will repent and to come and gather them as one people unto himself. It's this beautiful picture. And so the final kind of element here. Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, I just want to point out is that all sorts of people groups are actually coming together to worship Jesus. And it's this beautiful, life-filled community. Like, it's not just sitting around looking at God all day. It's the, You get this sense that it's this bustling community of various peoples coming together. And that's why when our churches can reflect the diversity of people groups, we're actually ourselves being an advanced signpost of Revelation 21. And that's also why specifically ethnic churches, it's worth questioning, is that actually reflecting God's glory or not? Um, when we were in Vancouver, lots of just Chinese churches. And that's great because it's good to have church in your own language. But if our churches actually create divisions between ourselves, um, we just have to ask, are we actually reflecting God's plan? If our churches actually do well to represent 
the demographics of our cities, then in some ways that's showing the love between cultures that that Jesus calls us to live out and and doesn't sort of promote a weird and false sense of racism or victimization or reparation or any of that, but simply saying all are made in God's image. Christ died to save us all. Let's come together. And the one who unites us is Jesus. And so when that's lived out in our churches, that's a really beautiful thing that then actually becomes itself a signpost of what God's going to do at the end of it all. This is a new transformed people of God from all the nations. Uh, and it's just this powerful picture, this, this powerful promise of what God is going to do in our broken world. And that starts to be lived out as you and I repent of our own sin, come into faith with Jesus, and let him start to renovate our hearts and lives to live in anticipation of this kingdom come. I wanted to end with two quotes. One's from C.S. Lewis and one's from Isaiah 60. And both are about the promise of God to come and dwell with us as he uh, remakes us, deals with our sins, starts setting things right, and, and prompts us to live in anticipation of this beautiful, beautiful future that we have in Revelation 21. First one from Lewis is a little more uh, individual, personal, this idea of co- God coming to dwell with us. And I've referred to this parable before, but it's, it just captures something really beautiful. This is Lewis. I think it's from Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to be making any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. This idea of God coming to dwell with us, folks, it starts with inviting Jesus into our lives and inviting him to come and dwell and remake us internally, spiritually here, to take up residence here because he's dealt with our sin at the cross and he's made a new way into everlasting life. And what he wants to do here internally, spiritually, when we come to faith and we receive salvation, God wants to do for all of his world at the very end. And that's what Isaiah 60 points to. It's in, it's. It's the, the thing we see fulfilled in Revelation 21. It's describing the new Jerusalem. This is Isaiah 60. It says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, the thick darkness the peoples. Man, that, that seems like now sometimes. Darkness covers the earth. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That's the gathering of the people's promise again, right? Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning will be ended. When darkness falls 
God will arise like the sun. When the nations fight, we know God's ultimate plan is to extend his invitation of salvation and to redeem them. And folks, we can go forward with this living hope that Jesus will undo the evil in our world. He will make all things new, and this motivates us to live for him here and now today, whatever this week has for you, to live for him yourself being an advanced signpost of his coming kingdom as you live with faith, hope, and love and point people to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this awesome promise of what you will do. And Lord, we mourn the places in our lives where we see this not at work, where we just see uh, things that would break your heart, Lord pain in our culture and ideologies that go against uh, all that you stand for, Lord, the dignity of human life, uh, the beauty that you've established in marriage, Lord, so many areas where we just see the fallout of sin and brokenness and idolatry. Um, Jesus, we just repent of the ways in which we have contributed to the sin and brokenness in the world. Uh, but, Lord, you also have called us out of that. And so today, Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, give your people vision to discern well where in our culture we are idol-making, where we're following Egypt or following Babylon, following the golden calf, following the beast, following that which others would say is like having God with us. Lord, give us discernment to set aside those things and instead point people to the true you. And Lord, I thank you that you have already come to dwell in us individually by the infilling of your spirit and corporately as the body of Christ, the church, with you as our head. And Lord, I pray as we navigate the cultural issues in our day, what we see in the media, what's going on in the high school, whatever else it might be, as we engage with others who are very different from us, as we seek to live for you, essentially, that, Lord, you would set our hopes on you and the promise you have given us in your word that you will indeed make all things new. You will uh, exercise your judgment in your timing. And, Lord, when we may be frustrated by where things are going in the world, that's not happening fast enough. Lord, help us to rest in you and your goodness, to trust that you've got this, that you play the long game, God. And Lord, I just pray that as we uh, let the promise of Revelation 21 just sit in our hearts, that you, you're going to come to dwell with us, that you, you want to bring people together unto yourself. Lord, that that would shape, shape our hearts, Lord, with a deeper love for you, and also a deeper love for our neighbors. That everyone we meet, Lord, bears your image. Everyone we meet is someone you long to bring to yourself on that great day. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us boldness and wisdom and love for the people around us, that we could be advanced signposts of your coming kingdom, that they would see your love and your life lived out in how we interact with those around us. And Lord, we just pray that by your spirit, you would draw many to yourself. Uh, equip us, Lord, with the boldness and the grace to live for you. 
especially when it's hard. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the words to speak when there's moments that we can uh, bear witness to you. And Lord, we just trust that you will guide us into those moments, and we just pray that you would uh, calm our hearts and give us wisdom, Lord, uh, to, to speak of you and what you've done in us, to bear witness to your gospel. Lord, I just thank you for this morning that we can gather and just pray your blessing over this church family that you deeply love. Thank you that we come from a, just a range of backgrounds and experiences and family origins and all the rest of it, Lord. Thank you that we uh, are a small picture of the body of Christ that will be reflected uh, in its fullness on that great day. So, Lord, uh, just pour out your spirit upon us. Bless us, we pray, as we seek to live for you. And with the words you taught us, we just pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? I'd love to send you out with the benediction. And if you would like prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, I'll bless you as you head into your week. Children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you rest in the glory of knowing God has taken up his dwelling in you. And as you look forward to that promise of him coming and filling the whole earth with his glory, may you live as advanced signposts as you live with faith, hope, and love in a broken world. May you be blessed to live out the mission of Jesus wherever he calls you. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.